I'm Kyle Thompson, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this week we're back with uh, part three of the uh, book Transforming Technology, which I no, I suppose it's chapter three, really, that we're looking at. Um, and the uh, the chapter is called the bias of technology, and this is where this is where the theory the theory that uh, Feinberg has been developing through these couple of chapters like really comes to a head, and we get to um, get to some of the really crunchy um, sort of conclusions. I quite enjoyed this chapter. Uh, there's the, it's quite dense, and uh, there's some stuff that we're going to kind of skip over because it's like history of philosophy sort of stuff that um, maybe isn't all that interesting. But um, I liked uh, the way it sort of tied everything up. You know. Yeah, it's it's very much a chapter that uh, gets to the point of the theory, uh, sort of presents the case, and um, it also shows its work, right? Like, it's, it's sort of showing the positions that it was inspired by and also, like, how it is trying to supersede them. Um, and so, yeah, maybe that's the part we'll skip over a little bit more, but the, the point is quite uh, strong and insightful. Yeah, it's... Um... And the point it's trying to get to is like the, the kind of big big question of like um, how do how do you sort of actually enact change in a technical system? Um, we begin from this kind of a this kind of problem of instrumental theory, right? That like you, it presumes that uh, you know subjects and their their means are, are separate and independent of each other, but like actually they're kind of entangled, right? That like um, the carpenter and his saw, the hunter and the rifle. And so on are kind of entangled phenomena. Like they're they the you know the 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 tool is shaped to your hand, and o- over time your hand moves to to fit the tool as well. Um, yeah, and sort of de- definitionally, definitionally, conceptually, they're also intertwined, right? Like it's you know a carpenter without his tools or without their tools, sorry, uh, would be uh, not a carpenter. <laughs> would not be a carpenter, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the tools on their own without a carpenter to wield them are kind of meaningless as well. Um, and this is sort of a, it's a bit of a paradox for reform, right? That like, how do you, how do social actors alter a system which defines their being, right? This is actually kind of tricky. The previous couple of chapters, which I absolutely recommend you go back and listen to if you're just joining us now, um, kind of outline some of this sort of stuff of like theories of design, ambivalence, and technological politics. But this chapter is going to try and put together a, a coherent formulation of this radical alternative, right? Um, and yeah, in, in, in doing that, um, there are some, there's a couple of forerunners that um, we're going to be building, or Feinberg will be building off of here, uh, Marcuse and Foucault. And the, this is a kind of a theme that runs through the book, but there's this like Feinberg finishing off the thoughts of like um, previous thinkers and kind of wrapping up some like half finished theoretical projects and kind of bringing, bringing together this like very coherent and well-reasoned uh, alternative way of looking at technology. Yeah, so we get into these kind of sections on Marcuse and Foucault themselves and um, the theories they sort of ended up with, um, which are pretty dense and a little bit twisty, uh, and they're kind of hard to read. And also, we we don't really have... Um, I don't think there's much need to really cover so much uh, all of the argumentation here, but the gist of it that I can kind of put together is that... Um, Marcuse tries to do this like a rational critique of rationality um, and sort of identifies uh, technical rationality as this like um, this this condensation of social and technical functions into into one sort of thing that ends up kind of representing private like particular interests and becomes a sort of world of uh, of technical rationality that it takes on the appearance of being the very heart and soul of rationality itself, right? That, like, 
the technical rationality that's informed by these social interests stands in the place of like neutral rationality like it presents itself as being neutral um and and totalizing is that a fair read on marcuse yeah it's it's sort of the idea that once technology and rationality developed to a certain level it became possible to use them to dominate other people and that technique has become so perfected that it is impossible to identify the domination in in that um in that rationality right like the 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 the, the two have become one dimensional right like there's 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 simply uh uh, no possibility for critique in in one dimensional or as as argued in one dimensional man just because people are subordinated but their needs are met in a, in a purely sort of material sense and that therefore uh, their domination appears to be something you can't complain about and is 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 perfectly rational so um uh, Marcuse was sort of saying, like, okay, how can we provide a rational critique of this supposedly perfect rationality? Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Um, and I think one of the one of Feinberg's objections here is that like uh, Marcuse's sort of work remains quite general and sort of vague, and that Foucault gives you a bit of a sort of corrective to this in that um, my sort of read of it is that like uh, Foucault kind of gets a bit more um, into the kind of um, small granular sort of components that like his his sort of ideas are he begins from like uh, what he calls micro techniques these like tiny techniques of control that are assembled into larger sort of disciplinary structures and i mean and and practices of social control i mean the, the examples here are like you know examination drilling picking out individuals you know dossiers and files and this sort of thing like you know clipboards and that sort of stuff so that like there's this repertoire of like micro techniques that combine into this generalized um social control um that then pervades the entire society and then um and is also like he also emphasizes that the, the coupling of power and knowledge right that like these um regimes of power and truth are coupled to particular ways of knowing and ways of like gathering data and investigating the um the individual subject and um and so on and that like technology is one of the the many sort of strands of control in this massive web that we're all all caught in um which is also a pretty grim <laughs> assessment of the, of the world um, yeah it's it's like whereas marcuse's analysis is sort of like at the very general level like coupled with some anecdotal evidence foucault's has that general sort of analysis coupled with like kind of situational analysis right of like these 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 particular situations exemplary situations that that highlight uh the operation of uh power but it doesn't really get from there from those sort of specific examples to something that would contradict the general notion that power is totalizing and that there the, the this no, power knowledge system uh has not just come to know and rule over people uh in a way that is is kind of beyond our capacity to uh rationally address mm-hmm. yeah there's there's problems that fall out from the um these the, the analyses of these these two individuals um and there, there's problems that uh, Feinberg is going to try to address um, 
And I think successfully does. Like, I mean, this is a really convincing sort of... Um, continuation of this this line of thought but yeah so he, he's sort of outlining what these problems are right that like th- th- there's something good in this that it's sort of the, the, the critique of rationality uh posits that you know there there are multiple rationalities like there's it's not just one fixed sort of totalizing thing and that you know the, the design of the design of the rational system influences everything else and so on but uh we end up in these kind of like two particular sort of problems um one that like these these like um kind of nightmarish dystopian sort of uh, visions, they they seem to preclude the possibility of resistance at all, right? Like that just everything's so totalizing that you can't, there's no room left for um, meaningful resistance. And also that like, when you get into the critique of rationality, there's this kind of risk of getting into irrationalism, right? That like, you can end up just undermining the validity of all knowledge, right? Like, uh, and uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. Yeah, like, um, knowledge is purely domination, and you can end up looking for some kind of uh, redress or some kind of counterforce to domination in just, like, purely irrational uh, areas, right? Like, uh, so something outside the system of reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's there's an interesting section here where um, Feinberg is kind of going on with the um, trying to get at like how do how do you get sort of back to um, having or how how do these thinkers at least try to get back to having some sort of room for resistance? You know, they, they sort of end up in these really difficult sort of positions where um, they kind of they can't really do it in their own sort of terms. And then we we get a mention of our our favorite old friend Deleuze here who um, injects into like the the argument this uh, this notion of like vitalism. And sort of like I suppose a fundamental sort of life force being a thing that would resist this uh, this totalizing sort of um, rationality. Feinberg has, has a problem with this because it's just a sort of pre-rational sort of chaotic, uh, you know, molecular vitalism that doesn't. Yeah, I, I think is pretty convincing that it can't really go anywhere of its own right. Um, I, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of outside of uh, questions of rationality, so. Mm-hmm it's not really clear how it would interact with them in any meaningful way right like it's 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 kind of um it's kind of just asserting resistance as a thing that exists without really a proving that that is actually a meaningful and existing thing uh and b like providing any kind of analysis of how that like always already existing resistance actually interacts with these these problems that have been raised by other thinkers about how um how reason functions in our society yeah it's um it's sort of uh, yeah it, it, it isn't enough right that's that's the kind of problem um, and this this is a very fundamental problem that you see in um Hardin negri's work um you see it everywhere right yeah. that like it's even in um it's in a lot of the stuff you get out of just sort of bog standard sort of anarchist or localist whatever spontaneous kind of stuff of like it's 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 sort of a lot of the times boils down to this um uh this sort of assertion that well eventually you know the river will eat away at the wall and eventually do something to it you know just that this this small molecular force will uh you know do some sort of damage to the the structure but like there isn't there isn't actually an account of how that would happen or how this like molecular resistance would transform into larger scale resistances or into other structures, which is what which is what like Feinberg's trying to get to here is that like he he wants something that's inside the realm of rationality, not something that's simply outside of it, um, eroding eroding the exterior of the thing. Um, and he he's pointing out this kind of need for uh, what he calls an ascending analysis of power, like start, starting from that small molecular level. 
and the small mechanisms and the small sort of um, maybe vital energies and then you know ac- accumulating and going upwards through these like layered structures to um to kind of get get to the what he calls meta powers so it's, i suppose it's it's the it's a similar to the kind of usual objection we have to localist uh, spontaneous sort of stuff that like yeah i mean you can you can have tiny blips of resistance here and there but in the face of like corporations and states and so on these meta powers it's kind of I mean, you, you know, you, you can kick that castle wall all you want, and it's probably never going to come down, right? <laughs> it's, um, like just booting it over and over again probably isn't going to do it. And um, the the numbers of like the number of analytical problems that you run into with these kinds of um, vitalist theories or like theories that are like arguments from uh, like purely arguments from human nature. Um, are are many mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can't get into all of them here but you know there there are many many problems yeah. i think to be to be fair to um i think to be fair to, to Deleuze, like it he's often mis misread as being this sort of like anar- anarcho sort of do it or whatever but I, th- I think what i understand of his actual work is that they he, he and guattari do sort of emphasize the need for organization and sort of larger structure they're they're not quite as anarchic as they initially seem but they do spend so much time talking about these kind of molecular forces or whatever that it can definitely be read that way um yeah well i think we'll we'll get into that a lot more when we talk about critical post-humanism yeah yeah um, definitely i think we can kind of table that subject for the moment certainly um so yeah i mean the the point at the the end of this section is that like this transformation requires like a transformation from within the field of power not like a kind of reliance on something coming from outside um the next section then is kind of addressing the irrationalism yeah which is a bit of a sort of back and forth that like so marcuse even marcuse doesn't seem to be completely consistent on this that like um in one moment he's saying you know ditch all the techno science but then also the emancipation of humanity requires the techno science so where 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 does he end up who knows shrug you know it's kind of not totally coherent which is yeah not great um and then foucault tries to kind of have a corrective in splitting power from domination where power is a, a kind of a life force, you know, a positive force in the kind of Nietzschean sort of sense, um, like a sort of will to power, whereas domination is like an institutional closure and um, totalization to kind of like limiting that kind of force, which is an interesting split, you know. Um, yeah, it it suggests the possibility that power could be otherwise, that there, there are sort of more, uh, more positive forms of power uh, self-legislation or, or power acting on itself um you know and, and very much the way that Nietzsche talks about it but it has it has sort of a a number of of, of problems to it as well in that like it, ha- it has a very hard time sort of distinguishing between different arrangements of power right it's it's very sort of like more of a desideratum than actually something you could reason out it's kind of like well yeah maybe it could be something else it's like yeah yeah maybe (laughs) sure i mean it, 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 it opens up that possibility but it's it's very sort of unclear what forms of power acting on itself are more or less desirable than others uh, other than like this sort of like vague kind of desire for freedom, right? And yeah, it's so it, it's. I mean, it, it opens up some possibilities for sort of rethinking things in Foucault's system, but it's it's not really that uh, 
that productive of a, mm-hmm. of a theorization. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's definitely where Feenberg lands on this, that, like, these um, these two thinkers, you know, they sort of end up in uh, at a bit of an impasse, you know, for both of them, um, that, that they have these problems, right, like, of not being able to account for resistance and, you know, sort of threatening rationality, like, itself, you know, like, in a... Yeah, and, and like, you know, Foucault brings up this idea of, of subjugated knowledges... Uh, which are also something that could operate against the system, right? Because he has this idea of power knowledge where it's, you know, if you if you have a form of knowledge, it is a form of power, and that's implicated in domination. And there are these resisting subjugated knowledges, other ways of knowing uh, that 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 are that could potentially overcome the power knowledge that is in a dominant position. But then but how <laughs> how do you well how and also how do you how do you adjudicate between different forms of subjugated knowledge like why do why does like you know if if one form of subjugated knowledge becomes the dominant form of knowledge is that better or worse like how can you judge uh it, it there's there's a lot of sort of deep um questions mm. and, and problems well, that you end up with there's an assumption that the subjugated knowledge is inherently progressive or is inherently a liberatory force. Like, whereas I think with subjugated knowledges, you can just end up with like Holocaust deniers, you know, (laughs) that's, that's a subjugated knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I, I'm not sure Foucault even goes so far as to think that they are necessarily positive. It's more just like, maybe they could be right you know like his infamous support of the iranian revolution i don't think he was necessarily on board saying like this is obviously the best thing possible it was more like well i'm gonna go in and and support this incredibly ill-advised uh project right like (laughs) like he was supporting a form of subjugated knowledge but it was a very bad idea, right? Yeah. Like, um, so, yeah, not not good, not good. Without um, having a sorting function to, like, um, partition good ideas from bad ideas, yeah, this is kind of a, a dead end, really. You kind of just have to go with your gut, right? And that's not awesome. Because because it's, it, it's outside the realm of what could be rationally considered, right? If power knowledge is the field, like is the totalizing field in which we're talking about, and one form of power knowledge is can only really be dominant or subordinate, there's no possibility of thinking through what is more preferable and what is less preferable from a rational standpoint because the rationality is always implicated in power knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, doesn't really go go very to a good place at all and um Feinberg kind of wraps up wraps up this section by saying that like I mean, he puts it quite well here that like um these difficulties arise because they lack a theory of technical hegemony capable of explaining the relationship of social organizations to ideology slash science and to power slash knowledge so Feinberg is calling out specifically the linkage between social organization and uh, social interests and these um these power knowledge formations which um, is kind of funny because, like, you would think that's the thing that Foucault and Marcuse were trying to interrogate, and yet they sort of end up not being able to link those th- two things back together. Yeah, and, uh, uh, there's there's sort of like two points that that Feinberg brings into this discussion. One is like a focus on the specificity of technology as opposed to just taking this idea of kind of 
generalized technical reason and applying a social critique to it. He's, he's instead more interested in sort of like particular artifacts and the, the technical field itself. And that, that opens up a new sort of perspective. And then the second thing he brings to it is this Gramscian idea of hegemony, which opens up the idea about sort of tactics and opposed forces and alliances and reconfigurations and spaces of, of, of action and play uh, that are not really present in either Marcuse or Foucault's social understanding. Uh, because those 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 points of view are so totalizing, whereas the Gramscian notion is very like, yeah, it's more dynamic and it sort of assumes a greater complexity to the dynamics, right? Like they're they're dynamics, but they're not simply binary dynamics. They're they're they're, they're binary dynamics that are informed by a lot of kind of localized, more complex dynamics that are going on, right? Because you you have power blocks forming and and hegemonies rising and collapsing and 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 struggles uh, between different social actors, right? So that opens up more possibilities for agency than you find in Marcuse or Foucault's theories. Mm -hmm. Is it cybernetic? Is that what's going on here? Is that Gramsci's cybernetics? Um, sort of. That <laughs> is a very good question <laughs> that I don't have the answer for right now. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that in a future episode. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Just yeah. Uh, yeah. off the cuff, I mean, it seems like that it's of a sort with the kind of things we've been talking about with cybernetics, complex systems and so on. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, like, that's a really good question. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. This is a really good question. So We'll do a four-part series on it sometime in March, probably. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, before that, we'll... Uh, we're getting we're getting into the we've gotten the Marcuse Foucault stuff out of the way. Uh, we're getting into the actual sort of nitty gritty of like what Feinberg is proposing as a better uh, interpretation of uh, of technology. The so we get into the section of the, the technical code, and its first section is the subsection is the the double aspect theory, which is really interesting. It's like um, the notion that um, you know power and knowledge or these. Um, basically hegemonic forces and cognitive forces that split they actually share a common foundation that there are there are two aspects of the same thing uh, underlying which i find really really quite interesting and that like the, the foundations like for for uh, marcuse were this kind of like um, abstractive ability and the, the sort of will's domination that would, would wield that abstraction and for uh foucault there were these like uh, the, the micro techniques but feinberg's gonna kind of elaborate um a proper theory here of like how to tie all this stuff together in such a way that it's actually coherent. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, really the the important thing is that the the technical code ties these two things together, right? The uh, this 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 kind of uh, social interest and technical knowledge are reconciled to one another by means of the technical code and in our case usually the capitalist technical code right um yeah um this is really quite insightful and he's, he's sort of like um he builds it up from the kind of like look first looking at like what is the role of rationality in modern hegemonies and that like to put it very crudely it's a sort of replacement for religion or the the, the old um 
medieval sort of ways of providing a structure for the um, the society where these like you know um, uh, codings of like behavior and um, and expression and and allocation of tasks. But in the capitalist era, capital capital is more free from those old limitations. And has this like well, it's the term we had in the previous episodes, operational autonomy. It has this uh, freedom to recombine and assign resources um, in all sorts of crazy sorts of ways. But that preserving that freedom becomes a meta goal of the system itself. And so every every decision that's made needs to enact some sort of ends and also preserve that autonomy. And then the thing that ensures that that happens is the technical code, which uh, I think that's the way he puts it here is that it. Um, brings the construction and interpretation of technical systems into conformity with the requirements of a system of domination. So it, it's, the, it's the, the linking function between these two things, between power and knowledge, or between, um, between the hegemonic social functions and the sort of uh, the, 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 the cognitive and technical functions. Yeah, I like this. This is quite good. <laughs> yeah, and the, the important thing here is that um, the, there, there's this sort of notion of like, technical elements mm -hmm. there's kind of atomic elements of technique of technology uh like springs levers and circuits which do conform to a kind of uh value neutral technical rationality right like a, a spring is innocent and a lever is innocent it's when they're combined into something that it, it takes on a character yeah so this is the this is the way in which Feenberg is able to escape irrationalism, mm -hmm. right? Because he's saying at some level, technologies are elementary enough that they are not value laden in themselves, right? It's, it's the way in which they are arranged together, which is made in conformity with the technical code. So he's, he's, he's not saying that means and ends are independent from one another, He's not saying that technology is innocent. He's saying that it's when you get to more complex technologies that their design becomes implicated in the agenda of capitalist domination. Mm -hmm. And he, he uses the, um, he sort of likens it to vocabulary and sentences in language, right? That like the, uh, the technical elements give you the vocabulary and it's the combination into sentences that has meaning and intention. And that, you know, that in, in one way, the technical code is the way that the system differentiates between true sentences and false sentences or differentiates like valid syntax from invalid syntax. Right. There's, there's like there's a fit of the technical assemblage. You know, you, you assemble some sort of technology out of its component parts, which are neutral. And then the combination has a sort of a score, essentially, as to how well it fits the technical code. And the technical code sort of folds over the whole social field and differentiates these things from each other and, um, you know, makes it so that some technologies are considered valid and good uh, inside this, the, the sphere of the, um, the system and that some are considered invalid and, and, and shouldn't, be, shouldn't be continued. Um, yeah, this, this is how those two realms are integrated, right? The social, the social forces and interests and the technical compositions are integrated together in this, um, this, this code, right? Um, yes. And uh, importantly, because at some level, technology is not purely power knowledge, is not purely an effect of power, 
it could be otherwise. Right. Right. Yeah. If we had a different technical code instead of one that maintained operational autonomy, then we could have different technologies. Yeah. Right. The um, the example he uses here is the assembly line uh, as a technology, which um, in our world, you know, was a, a, a huge innovation for um, for capital, right? Like, and uh, was was welcomed as this this amazing leap forward in productivity and labor discipline. But in a different world, you know, say a world uh, run by like workers' communes, that that technology would be considered invalid, right? Like, it it would be it wouldn't be of any use to anyone because it the technical code would be different, and so the you know, so even to go back to like uh, the dispossessed, right? Like, you bring the assembly line to a place like Anares, and they'd be like, what the, what the fuck? What the fuck is this shit? Like, this is this is worthless. Yes. Whereas yes. on the other planet, it would be, oh gosh, that the assembly line, amazing. It's it's wonderful. You know? Yeah, it's a wonderful rational innovation, right? So the 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 the, the what is characterized as rational is is specified in the technical code, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's um the the values the values of the the sort of rulers of the system are encoded in the technical code and then that def- decides it pretends to be a neutral assessment of what is good and bad, but it is actually extremely value laden. Um yeah, this this is this is great. You know. It's yeah, it's just that that assessment does not con- Contaminate all rationality. No, no. This is crucial. Yeah, that like um, the uh, the way Feinberg puts it is that like the the high level structures, like the institutions and the uh, the institutional structures of science and technology and social organization, they're able to op- interoperate with each other and to act very coherently because they share this like micro technical foundation. But that foundation is quite ambiguous, right? Like, up, up towards the top, it is saturated in ideology. But towards the bottom, you get these more molecular assemblies of relatively neutral components. And down there, things are ambiguous and sort of have a lot of wiggle room. And so, and like, you know, new, new technologies can threaten the, the hegemony that way. Like, there, there can be an emergence in the lower structures that is actually quite threatening to the higher structure. Which is awesome because now we've we've sort of restored the possibility of uh, of like change and resistance, like that the the, the system isn't actually totalizing. Um, and it, the the basis for the basis for opposition is within the realm of rationality, as opposed to being um, irrationalist. Yes, um, yes, it is. That is crucial because then we get to um, we get to have nice things instead of you know throwing out the entire techno science <laughs> yeah we can we can reason otherwise right? right yeah uh yeah that is that is crucial right because otherwise we're we're left with our, our old friend ted you know as the only the only way out you know um <laughs> no because this is really genuinely crucial stuff because like it it means that there, there are all there are different rationalities that we could have that would still be that would be rational and they would be technical and we would have nice things such as you know medicine and um you know computers and high-speed communication and such but that it could be directed to a completely different end because the very encoding of what is considered good and bad in the system would be different um yeah wild so the next section we get onto is a formal bias uh, which is pretty interesting um could you could you explain what this formal bias bit is about uh yeah so this sort of brings up the the point about formal versus substantive bias um so substantive bias is you know sort of very obvious bias or like um you know segregationism is is substantively biased right that 
well, there are these places that whites can go and there are these places that blacks can go. And you can criticize that on the, the very obvious grounds that, you know, well, these these places that whites can go seem to be a whole lot nicer than the places that blacks are allowed to go. So maybe we should let blacks into those spaces because they're also people, and this is a substantive bias we can overcome. Formal bias is a more insidious thing, where up front, in the sort of small-scale, detailed operation of, of the artifact or of the system, there's no evidence of a substantive bias, right? That it's not clearly biased towards one person or another. So, you know, a very common you know, sort of to, to carry on this, this, this thing about uh, racial discrimination, uh, you know, a, a very sort of common uh, uh, example that is used for this is, is like the SAT, right? Um, the, the SAT is not substantively biased. Um, anybody can take the SAT test the SAT test is based on procedures that appear to be uh, rational and rigorous um, and, you know, it's self-critical and aimed at, at creating a, a fair system that does not discriminate on, say, something like caste, race, uh, sex, gender, nationality, like any of those things, right? Uh, it, 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 is, it is open to anyone to take, right? The problem is with a system like that and sort of the, the general education system that it, it supports, which reproduces a system of, of social domination or factors into the capitalist system of social domination under the guise of meritocracy, is the way that its particular structure figures into the broader social system, right? So what kinds of questions are counted as rational and valid for inclusion in the SAT are questions that tend to favor people with uh, more access to educational resources and also uh, favors the the dominant culture the dominant say the dominant white culture or like what you know like uh, appeals to sort of norms of uh of values that are commonly held by upper class whites so so on the face of it there is no bias right and people when they defend the system will point to that they will say well you know these are just questions these are just you know, these are just uh, simple technical questions or simple questions of knowledge. It, it doesn't say you can't take this test if you are X. It's all open, but in its actual formal functioning, it is biased um, and it does reproduce a, uh, a system of social stratification that is functionally equivalent to a substantively biased system. Right. And so, like, um, substantive bias will be, like, applying different standards to people, like, unfairly applying different standards, whereas a formal bias can come about by unfairly applying the same stand, over-applying the same standard to everyone and erasing context and erasing, um, or erasing or hiding systematic unfairness, right? That, like, um, yeah, that, like, essentially over, over being overly fair can be a way of being biased in that kind of way. Um, yeah, it's as long as your uh, your criterion for fairness 
is itself biased, uh, then uh, applying a fair standard to everybody is actually unfair. Right. Yeah, which is which is pretty insidious, right? Like, um, and how does how does how does Feinberg tie this in with the rest of the um, the rest of the argument then? Um, yeah. So I think that this this basically ties into the point about the technical code, right? That uh, the the application of tech of of the technical code erases the sort of broader questions of fairness and the broader questions of values and of domination under the guise of rationality, right? Like the assembly line is formally biased against workers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it can be said, oh, well, but it's just a machine and, and you know, any person could work here uh, and, uh, you know, given uh, certain restrictions uh, and, you know, like, we, well, you signed a contract for this job. Like, I mean, uh, it, you did it of your own free will. Why are you complaining? You're getting paid, aren't you? Uh, all of these kinds of things are are evidence of formal bias, not uh, substantive bias. And it's that kind of formal bias that the, the, the technical code uh, uses to reproduce capitalist domination in a technical form. It's um, it's good stuff because like, I'd, I'd never, I hadn't really heard of the, the formal substantive bias uh, distinction before, and it kind of gives—it's nice in that it gives a name to the thing, and um, I think that's that's kind of the value of the book, really, is it it puts a name on these dynamics and these um, these phenomena that like you would otherwise go without because I mean they're designed to be not not designed to be invisible, but it designed to be inscrutable, like that you you can't get a hold on them. Um, yeah, the, I mean that's that's one of the values of sort of philosophical thinking, right, is coming up with names for things and concepts for things. And that's, yeah, one of the values of this book, for sure. Yeah. Um, and in the last section of this chapter, we get into some some pretty cool stuff as well, like uh, putting some good names on stuff. Um, the section's called Technological Figurations, and it's kind of about this question of, like, what would a... No, we've established, like, the, you know, the, the biases of, of technology and its uh, hegemonic sort of uses, but what would a counter-hegemonic use of technology be? Um, like what, what's the sort of room for resistance in this thing? And yeah, there's this really interesting, uh, sort of notion that, um, we, like previously, I think, especially in Marcuse and Foucault, we've had the notion that the system is a well-oiled machine and it's a totalizing sort of thing. But that the claim here is that, yeah, that that is the impression you get from inside the system or from, from above, right? Like where the, where the rulers live. From from the from the position of the leaders, it looks like this is a well-oiled sort of machine that carries out their strategic, um, uh, you know, instructions uh, to the letter. But from below, it looks more like a game in the game theoretic sense than a machine. And that this this there's an ambiguity there, right? Like, um, and this gives us some sort of room to uh, to think of the different ways that you can see the, the system can be seen from at least two different angles, and it looks quite different in both uh, positions. Um, which is really, really quite interesting because it's like I'd never. This this isn't a notion that comes up anywhere else, really, is it? Like, um, or am I? Is is there is there any other sort of theorists that get onto this? Well, um, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff does sort of come out of like the literature of resistance and like Disserto as 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 uh, Feinberg cites uh, him, uh, but. Uh, 
it's it's well worth thinking about. I mean, I think it has a lot of analytic value because, you know, you could say, for example, the, the sort of panicked reactions of neoliberal centrists to the way that politics have gone in recent years is a pretty good demonstration of this, right? In in that for people who were very closely established or very closely associated with the um, neoliberal establishment and, and the norms and systems that it had set up, society did look like a well-oiled machine. It was just a matter of keeping it going, doing some tinkering and so on and so on. For people from below, uh, you know, either on the left or on the right, people who are were not at the core of that uh, neoliberal centrist sort of consensus, it did look like a game. And there were tactics that were formulated to act against the dominant party, the hegemonic party. And uh, as that as that uh, quote-unquote well-oiled machine, as that hegemonic system has become more and more unhinged and more and more destabilized, there the, the the sort of you know sudden outbursts of uh, of uh, emotion and kind of irrational responses by people who are centrist neoliberals kind of tell like it's a tell that they didn't have an understanding of the political situation as a game. Right. They, they saw it as that well-oiled machine and the sudden eruption of <laughs> the game logic into the thing is something that they're having a very difficult time understanding. So I think that the, the theory does sort of bear out in practice. Hmm. No, it's it's great. Yeah, maybe it's just probably just the first time I'm seeing it. <laughs> um, but one of, the, one of the crucial points of this game base as well is that like... Um, this is a strange game in that uh, the playing of the game changes its own rules in many ways. So, you know, from above, you have strategy. Below, you have tactics. You know, on the, the, the insiders have strategy. The outsiders have tactics. And that it's um, there's a certain amount of, like, um, you know, margin for maneuver is the way... Um, Feenberg puts it in the in the sort of tactical realm, and it, it's a sort of an autonomy of its of its own because you know the the instructions are issued on high and then they need to be actually applied on the ground, like in the trenches, whatever. And um, because the people on the inside or you know the uh, above, they don't have a total picture of what's going on. They can only issue general sort of instruction, and the implementation on the ground has to be a little bit loose. But it's that looseness that gives room for maneuver in the game right like it's um you know there's a thing that like it's kind of a notion we've touched on a couple of times but that the the system can't totalize everything it's a it gives the impression of being totalistic from above like from the strategic standpoint but from the from the ground in the trenches it looks quite shoddy and is actually filled with little cracks and and, and errors um and that the thing in here is that like as the players play the game they could change the rules, right? Like as which is which is kind of how this 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 game plays, right? Um, yeah, that that is the the crucial point. Um, that that somehow tactical action by the subordinate parties can both amount to strategic action and can also alter the rules of the game in their favor. Yeah, and that is kind of. Um, is, is a point that is, I guess, kind of borne out in the notion of revolution, right? Uh, without some kind of theory of revolution, that's sort of a an assertion without much evidence. But, you know, I think that that's kind of the paradigm case of what is meant by, 
you know, fundamentally altering the rules of the game or having tactics and mount to some kind of strategy. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and there's, the, we kind of wrap up on a, just sort of running through some sort of examples of what that kind of shift in power would look like, um, where I mean, we sort of start from the, the sort of observation that um, the game we play you know, is very much rigged in favor of, um, or th there are there are a couple of positions of leaders who manage others. This is a very hierarchical structure to the game, but that through the, through the play there is this possibility of it becoming less hierarchical, right? That like um, exactly as you said, that the as as things play out, you might get these these power shifts, um, and it'll. There's kind of a really a really sort of nice way it's put here that like for, while while the upper level players have their power the play of the game looks like it's simply the implementation of their will that there's there's a natural there seems to be a natural flow from the strategic thinking of their minds outwards into the world and it, it simply becomes enacted but that if the power shifts or like as as the, the looseness in the game uh maybe gets looser and looser or uh you know the the the, the people on the tactical level are uh, exploiting these kind of uh, margins, it starts to go off the rails. Essentially, like like what we were saying about the the sort of neoliberal psychosis syndrome that we see in in people today, that they lose they lose their grip on things, and uh, there is room there. There's there's wiggle room for for actual change, and that's how that's how we kind of wrap up with you know the possibility of change and the possibility of uh, of actual resistance to this um, supposedly totalizing force because. You know, Marcuse and Foucault kind of get it wrong. Like the the system isn't totalizing; it just looks that way. Which um, which is funny because like that's that's a sort of a very Marxist thing, isn't it? Like the kind of um, looking behind the appearances of things to get at their actuality. Mm -hmm. Like this is a nicely sort of a Marxian kind of a take on things. Where yes, the system presents itself to you as if it is total and as if it is like a divine agent that is irresistible. But um, if you look behind it, you look behind the fetish, you know, of uh, the fetish of the system, you see something much more creaky and full of cracks and uh, and uh, points of articulation and joints and things you can move around, and it's in it's in the moving around of these things that the, the possibility of change resides. Yeah, and that's that's how we could change the technical code. You know, that's like when when we say about changing the rules of the game, that's essentially changing the technical code, right? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think in that sense, it's it's very valuable. It definitely has. Uh, I think it has a, a kind of um, uh, analytical value that is is borne out in um, actual examples we've seen in the years since this book was written. I do think that there are ways in which the theory is kind of dated, or there were things. There's things that have happened in the interim that couldn't have really been accounted for at the time that the the book was written. I, I think that the the first and most sort of obvious thing is that there's a kind of assumption that within this technical field of action, there are the dominant parties and the subordinate parties, and the subordinate party's action is sort of unproblem unproblematically good, right? Like that you know, um, in a sense, kind of similar to the problem that we ran into with Foucault, right? That, well, what if the person who's subordinate is actually the Ayatollah, right? <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but, like, uh -huh. uh, you know, in a more sort of technically localized sense, we've seen all of these problems emerge with, like, the, the alt-right Gamergate and other fascistic groups online 
that when you look at them in this uh, localized technical sense, they are subordinate parties in a relationship with people who are in a dominant position, you know, for example, giant games corporations or Twitter or Google or something, right? Like they're operating at the tactical level versus the strategy of these corporations. But their actions are reprehensible, right? <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, like, resistance isn't necessarily progressive. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're fascists, right? Like, uh, you know, so um, I think that the at the time that this book was originally conceived, the the means of communication were so centrally held that it was easier to think in sort of an unproblematic resistance or unproblematic tactics by the subordinated. And I'm not saying that the people who are members of Gamergate or are members of the alt-right are subordinate in a general sense. I'm only saying that they are subordinate in a local technical sense. And you can't take it as given that that, that subordinated position is... Uh, an angelic one you know yeah and oftentimes like the sort of positions the subject positions that that these these kind of fascistic groups have are ones that have been encouraged over time by the sort of ideology of capitalism or the marketing campaigns like you know which are basically uh, eight, uh, uh vectors for ideology um, that have produced these subject positions. So, you know, for example, the, the Gamergate ideology of, like, true gamers being, like, young white men um, with with money that has been promoted for decades by the advertising uh, campaigns that are part of the games industry. And now the games industry finds itself with a sort of PR marketing community management problem that is, is a product of its own previous marketing efforts. It's just in a purely local technical sense, these people are in the subordinate position and they're using tactics to try to alter the technical uh, to alter the technical code. Right. Or to like to resist any changes to it in a way that doesn't privilege their very narrow section of the, the broader market. Right. And so. That points to kind of a, a broader problem with the theory, which is that in the, the way it's presented in the book, it seems to kind of it seems to kind of say that it offers a kind of like um, general answer to the ails of contemporary civilization. Right. Because, you know, it, it, it is responding to thinkers who were very totalizing. Right. And it's 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 acting at this level of sort of like the state of rationality in the modern world. Right. But we can see in those practical examples that it has a it definitely has a local validity and analytical validity, but it seems to have a kind of a fundamental problem with it in terms of uh, evaluation. Right. Um, so. I think that the theory is obviously not bunk because it's, you know, it's it's borne out by obviously the tactics and, and actions of the alt-right. Like, the, 
they are using an analog of this theory that they have arrived at through practice and that bears out its analytical validity. We need to think very hard about how we use this theory ourselves in the context of a very different political situation and media environment and communications environment than the one in which this book was conceived. And, you know, conservative populism and the backlash of fascism on dominant interests is not a new thing. It's just kind of, it's kind of a thing that didn't really appear that problematic or obvious at the time that this book or the books that inspired it were written. So very good theory, very good thinking, just we need to we need to update it. We need to move it forward. We need to think mm-hmm. about our context now is kind of where I come away with this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that's why we, we brought it up and why we dedicated three episodes to it. Because, like, um, I think this is immensely useful stuff. And uh, especially for anyone who's, well, broadly for anyone who's, like, a fan of the show and likes this notion of, like, a technological future that's, like, better than this one. And, um, and uh, you know, socialist and so on. And, uh, and concretely for the... Um, kind of a immediate sort of because like it's been a theme throughout all of the episodes we've done really that like there's this um desire to change technical society to improve it rather mm. than uh you know abandon it and i mean if you're into that if you want to or even it's just like the, the tech organizing stuff if you're into creating a better technological future a better modern civilization um this i think is pretty essential like i would We've, we've skipped over so much detail. Like, there's so much... Like, this is such dense argumentation. It's, it's not particularly hard to read, but it's, like, sentence by sentence, he's making a point, right? Like, uh, in each and every one of them. So I would strongly recommend picking up the book, just even just to read those three chapters um, properly, because uh, we've, we've skipped over quite a bit of stuff. Um, this is a, a definite recommendation. But as you said, yeah, it needs, it needs updating, which is why we brought it up, because it needs updating. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that, you know, the work that needs to be done is sort of clarifying the relationship of specific instances of technical conflict and the sort of general technical code, right? You know, how does it relate to the mode of production, to the forms of structural oppression in our society, generally speaking? Because if you get too local, which, you know, is definitely a problem you can run into is things like actor network theory, as, as Feinberg rightly states, you can kind of lose the forest for the trees. And so um, some of the, the areas where this analysis is the strongest need to be supplemented by like sort of strengthening that more general analysis. Right. So, you know, Feinberg kind of provides a specific answer to these generalizing, totalizing theories and maybe we need to recont- recontextualize this kind of specific response within a more general theory. Um, and, and you know, um, also, I haven't read his most re- recent work, so maybe he's already done this. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this, was the, this is the work that is more, most specifically concerned with Marx and with socialism that he's done, as far as I know. So, uh, so it was a good choice in that sense because it brought us through the whole Marxist tradition up to um, a contemporary kind of analysis. So I'm, I'm glad we read it and I would definitely recommend reading it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else we need to cover before wrapping up? I think, I think we've, I mean, as you said, there's quite a bit we left out, but I mean, I think we got most of it. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I would just say uh, if you're interested in case studies uh, that impl that uh, sort of develop this kind of theory, you can either read the rest of this book or you can read some of the many other books that Feinberg's written because uh, you know you can you can see examples like things like uh, you know more positive examples like for example people who are suffering from HIV/AIDS fighting to get medication to save their lives. That that's an example where you can say, oh yeah, like these people altered the code of what was considered to be marketable medicine um, in a way that ended up saving a whole lot of lives and addressing the exclusion of uh, victims of, of, of this disease, sufferers of this disease. So, you know, there's plenty of positive examples you can point to. Uh, it's just the counter examples that I brought up there in the conclusion. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, we got to keep an eye on the, the those bad, those bad examples too. But uh, yeah. that, does, that does sound <laughs> fascinating. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, I guess that's it for transforming technology. Uh, thanks for listening. You know, listeners, um, we really appreciate having you along on these uh, these adventures. Um, if you want to keep up with us, uh, or if, you know, if you're new to the show and want to keep up with us, you can follow us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit, and um, you know, like subscribe, all that kind of stuff, and share us around with your friends or anyone you think might be interested in this kind of analysis. Uh, and another way to support us as well is to go to patreon.com slash general intellect unit and uh, maybe throw us a couple of bucks a month to, you know, pay for books and uh, hosting and a couple of other things that, uh, you know, the, the expenses of being podcast boys. Um, it's not, <laughs> yes. a, it's not, a, not a cheap uh, not a cheap operation. Uh, plus, we keep buying books. So, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.